Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy. Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and I love to bring these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. This show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if you like ag podcasts, vlogs, and blogs, head over to the website farmruralag.com and check out some shows that are way better than this. Uh, I wanted to think about this series of sustainability at scale. And before I dove into it, I just wanted to take a step back and look at it from a maybe a bit, a bit of an academic perspective, at least definitely from an evidence-based perspective and really think about what is sustainability? How should we be looking at this? Everybody with an agenda wants to call their agenda more sustainable, right? It's a buzzword that has almost been rendered useless by everybody using it for their own purpose. Purposes. And whenever I want objective information about agriculture, one of the places I go is the Food and Farm Discussion Lab. More specifically, I go to their Facebook group. If you're not a member of this group and you're on Facebook, you, you definitely want to, to be in there. If you, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, you will get a lot of value from this Facebook group. So Food and Farm Discussion Lab, uh, it's a blog. Uh, it's actually a couple blogs, um, and it was started by this guy named Mark Brazo. And and Mark is uh, somebody who is has definitely had a, a really unique background that has led him to agriculture issues and the way he looks at agriculture issues and thinks about them. He grew up in the Northeast, um, grew up around, you, you know, some agriculture, vegetables, fruits, that sort of sort of thing, helping out the grandparents farm and orchard and uh, worked in agriculture um, when he was young. But then he got into actually working with union organizing. So he organized unions, both um, for private companies as well as in more of a public space, um, primarily in the southern U.S. That led him eventually into an interest in food where he became a chef and actually had a restaurant up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I think also one in Tucson, Arizona. So he's coming at agriculture really from the uh, farm to table movement that got him interested in this. But uh, he also is a bit of a skeptic. I don't know if he would label himself that, but um, he is somebody who seeks evidence-based claims and he wants to develop his own opinion um, based on evidence. And this group, this Food and Farm Discussion Lab and the forum on Facebook really reflects this. If you want to go on there and make a claim about agriculture, you need to be able to back it up with evidence. And I, I respect the way that this forum is um, managed, the way it's led, the way it's supervised. And I also really respect the opinions that come out of it because by the time they come out of it, they've usually been questioned from every possible angle and been forced to um, provide evidence to to what they claim and what they view. And there's it doesn't mean everybody on there thinks the same way. In fact, what's great about it is most of the people on there are all coming at agriculture, food and farm discussion, this food and farm discussion from different angles. So anyway, all that to say, I wanted to bring Mark on the show because I, if I think of somebody who is coming at this from from um, without an agenda, he he's, doesn't work for a corporation. His uh, Really, his aim here is to try to get at what is true about agriculture and what is backed up by science and what's backed up by evidence. And so I wanted to ask Mark about, based on what he's seen in the Food and Farm Discussion Lab, 
how should we be thinking about this sustainability discussion? And we get into all sorts of things from uh, what he views as the, the most pressing matters when it comes to sustainability, what's maybe overhyped when it comes to sustainability, and how his opinions have changed from getting interested in food and farm, from the um, Michael Pollan sort of philosophy to what the evidence, where the evidence has led him. So I enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Here is Mark Brazo, who is the chief organizer and editor of the Food and Farm Discussion Lab. We'll jump right into the conversation where Mark starts talking about how he got to the point of starting the Food and Farm Discussion Lab. Two thousand six, I think, was the year Omnivore's Dilemma came out, and I was, re- you know, I was reading. I got interested in, you know, food movement issues. I was reading uh, Tom Philpot and Grist and Civil Eats and Michael Pollan. I was enthusiastic about uh, Will Allen's uh, Growing Power in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and certain things just weren't squaring up with me. So I started doing serious research. Um, at first, which things weren't squaring up with you? Here's an example. One of the things was I kept reading that how organic yields could come close or match or even surpass conventional and that organic is more profitable. And I kept, I was, you know, kept wondering like, well, if uh, organic's so great, why don't more farmers transition to it? And I could tell from following farmers or farmers' wives on Twitter that they didn't think Michael Pollan or Alice Waters was so were so smart and weren't so enthusiastic about organic farming. So I went back and dug up all the articles that I had read and realized, you know, it's reading them, you know, every six or eight months over a course of a couple of years. They were all really the same article in that they were reporting like on the annual release of the results of the Rodale trial. So, it, you know, I was like, oh, wait, this isn't that strong of evidence, actually, now that I think about it. It's a trial run, you know, it's run by organic advocates and it's a trial. It's not real life, um, you know, and is it comparing best practices organic to a standard conventional or lowest common denominator conventional. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go on Google Scholar and try to figure out um, what's going on. And I learned enough about doing science research on my own to start with meta-analyses and literature reviews instead of individual studies, it became quickly apparent that on most environmental impacts, uh, conventional is superior to organic and that yields are uh, kind of a key variable because they run through other variables. Uh, You know, one of the first studies I read was the uh, 2012 Tuomisto meta-analysis comparing European, organic, and conventional. And there are things where they said, well, on this or that impact, uh, organic is superior per acre, but conventional is superior per unit of product. That was a light bulb. Hmm. It was like, well, of course, I mean, unit per product, you know, the impacts per 
melon or per bushel are more important than per acre. Because there's a certain set amount of demand that has to be met or is going to be met. Mm -hmm. So Steve Savage had a series of uh, essays or blog posts um, when I'm understanding monoculture. It gave me a much more nuanced view of thinking about monoculture and diverse rotations or non-diverse rotations, but also really made me realize that I had been walking around with a really derpy, you know, trite kind of bumper sticker idea about monoculture and that the people I was getting my IQs from, my ideas from, just didn't know, really didn't understand this stuff as well as I thought they did. And I was finding people who, once I was, you know, exposed to better analysis, it was clear to me, oh, these people know what the heck they're talking about. Um, I wasn't anti-GMO and I wasn't uh, like a kind of that raving pseudoscience, you know, brand of anti-GMO, but more similar to Michael Pollan of, you know, questions about does it increase monocultures, concerns about patting life and farmers getting sued and increasing pesticide use. And then finding out the opposite is true. It decreased insecticide use quite a bit and really improved. It did, hasn't decreased herbicide use in terms of how much is used, but the risk profile the toxicity profile has changed, has improved quite a bit. You know, and we're entering on this podcast, this series called Sustainability at Scale. I'm excited about it. One of the things that I'm concerned about is just this word sustainability and the weight it sort of carries because people have thrown it around for various uses <laughs> uh, right. of their own. But I'm curious from, from your perspective, because you clearly are somebody who has spent a lot of time researching and thinking about these things objectively. How do you think we should sort of define sustainability or how should we look at sustainability as, as an agriculture industry? We tend to use the term sustainability to mean two different things. The first uh, is, is less commonly used more of a kind of a stickler definition. And that's the ability to operate a system kind of indefinitely in a steady state or indefinitely, even as increasingly increasing population puts higher demands on the system. I think the more common meaning is, is more directional rather than that endpoint definition. So it's just asking, are we reducing impacts? And that, that might mean um, we're approaching a steady state system or maybe we're buying time until the next disruptive technology moves production in a different direction that removes uh, current pressures on current ecosystems. So you can think of like whale oil, right? You know, we're preach, uh, fast approaching, you know, peak whale oil when we switched over to petroleum. Or, you know, the guano wars where countries were going to war over uh, reserves of back guano in uh, South America it, because Europe was just could not uh, replace nitrogen in their soil to farm 
uh, intensively enough to feed their cities when uh, Haber-Bosch process was invented. So I think I tend to think the second framing is more productive. That we should just think about: Are we reducing impacts? Are we moving in the right direction? I think. Uh, trying to think about it as an end of achieving a steady state is kind of paralyzing. And it's also, you can't, to be sustainable, one of the legs of that stool, however many legs you define it, uh, one of the legs has got to be economic sustainability. If the farm can't survive, you know, paying its own way, paying its bills, then it doesn't matter how much you lower impacts. That farm's going to go out of business and be replaced by one that's, you know, less, you know, that's going to be more impactful, but also more profitable. As you think about sustainability now, which obviously economic sustainability you mentioned, but what other aspects to, to sustainability, this idea of sort of uh, reducing the impacts. What comes to mind is most pressing to you as unsustainable practices or things that we need to really hone in on? I try to take my cues, like I said, from the research literature, from experts, and then they, you know, they have to square with my values. But from, you know, looking at different overviews of global impacts of farming, the one, the six I see that are common uh, to no matter who is who's doing the writing or the talking, are greenhouse gas emissions, nutrient management and the nutrient cycle, which really is two, but you know, a list of six is nice and tidy. Uh, soil health, water conservation and management, uh, land use, so that's uh, deforestation is, is related to that, um, or the potential f- to go in the opposite direction and rewild. And then food waste. That was an eye-opener. One of the first, uh, one of these studies um, and surveys that I read, I was struck that uh, pesticide use, ecotoxicity, wasn't among their concerns. Um, And it seemed kind of conspicuous in its absence. Because coming out of the food movement and and being surrounded by organic advocates, there's so much, um, you know, focus on pesticide use. And between the stuff I'd read from Steve Savage and then looking at a number of these global studies and reports on impacts, that was a very common thing that just like as a something that we really is a pressing issue pesticides use just does not rate as much as fertilizer use in nutrient management and erosion soil erosion and building uh, back soil organic matter and, and and land use so those are the six that I'm always looking at the other thing that I think about is scale and so, if somebody's proposing a reform or an innovation, I'm asking, you know, one of my first questions is, is this a large part of this? Does this apply to a large part of the system? And for me, that's two big things. One is it means we're talking about commodity crops, 
um, or very large per unit um, impacts on non-commodity crops. Because I, and people, I don't think, have a great mental model, you know, so for thinking about scale. So corn is on, in the U.S., is 90 million acres. Uh, soy, 75 million acres. Forage crops, uh, 55 million acres. Wheat, 50 million acres. Orchards, orchard crops, fruit, tree crops. Uh, so that's groves and orchards is 5 million acres, and vegetables are 4 million acres. And the bulk of that is is potatoes, sweet corn, lettuce, and, and canning tomatoes. So orchards and vegetables are not even 20% of wheat. If we aren't thinking first and foremost about how to make, you know, we can have a big philosophical debate about whether we're growing too much corn and soy or whether we rely too much on commodity crops. That's what we're growing, right? So if you're not dealing with corn, soy, wheat, forage crops, then you're not really having a serious conversation about uh, sustainability. The other is protein is the bottleneck. Protein is... is uh, biologically expensive because nitrogen is uh, biologically expensive. So the other big thing we need to be looking at if we're having a serious conversation about sustainability at scale is meat and protein production, whether it's transitioning to plant-based sources of meat or uh, reducing the impacts of of meat production. And, and that, I think, has got to be a, a both and conversation that, and really the the low hanging fruit. I think where you can move the needle the most is improving meat production, especially beef. I want to come back to that one, but what other what other kind of sustainability related initiatives or technologies do you think maybe are overhyped, or at least you're a little skeptical of the impact they're truly going to have? I'm definitely skeptical about vertical farms, and part of that's just a reaction to the rhetoric. I just I think they will have a place in urban agriculture. I just think they're way overhyped. Uh, I think uh, you know that there's a lot of aspects of urban farming that are overhyped in terms of sustainability, whether it's uh, urban small uh, CSA farms or gardens or rooftop farms. I think those things are great. I'm not I. I'm not against them, but I think they're better understood either as, you know, maybe helping with food security in low-income communities or, um, you know, just with connecting people to the food system and educating them about how food is grown. They uh, may provide some ecosystem services in terms of pollinator habitat uh, they have a you know an educational purpose if they provide uh, sustaining and, and satisfying work for the people who work on them that's fantastic 
Uh, they are great for place, you know, making the city feel more vibrant and livable. That's all great, but don't please don't tell me that they're going to revolutionize the food system or have any big effect on uh, the sustainability of the food system. One thing that this I don't know. I've only started kind of thinking about it in the last two weeks is pasture grazing and intensive grazing is getting a little overhyped. But I wonder if, because here's the problem with those systems is that what you're really doing is switching from a system where food is the product to a system where soil is the product. As a niche item, as a small part of the system, we can afford to, you know, you convert several million acres of of uh, rangeland in production to that system. But at a certain point, it's just taking up more and more land, and without producing uh, at the expense of you know meeting the demand for meat. On the other hand, they are they're one of the best ways of of uh, increasing soil organic matter. So what I wonder is instead of getting really hyped about a handful of high profile uh, intensively managed uh, pasture farms, would it make sense in uh, I think this makes sense in bigger. Uh, Midwestern farms to bring in pasture as part of a rotation on part of your farm um, for, I don't know, two, three years, and then uh, then move that somewhere else and go back to cropping that. That's a question to me. I think those pasture farms are a bit, they seem to be overhyped, you know, more power to them, but that can, that's a system that can only, is only sustainable as, you know, on the margins, you know, right. seems to me. I know you've mentioned uh, Biofortified and Steve Savage a couple times here. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that inherently your answer is going to have to leave a lot of people out. But other than right. th- those two, who do you who do you look to either on social media or just in general to think about some of these issues that you just really respect, you know, their outlook on on the future of agriculture? Andrew McGuire. Uh, is an agronomist with um, Washington State University so in their extension program, been a big influence, and he blogs on the uh, WSA's, uh, WSU's Center for Sustainability within their ag department. A number of these people, we've, uh, I have uh, agreements with them to uh, republish. So a lot of Andy's, my favorite stuff by Andy is on the Food and Farm Discussion Lab website. So I'll also get just give you the link to his, his author uh, archive. So I think, and that might be for lay readers. I think that I'm not trying to steal traffic from him. I'm always trying to get traffic for our website. But for the lay reader, that archive is going to be, I think, more interesting reading because some of 
and he's blogging is for uh, yeah for farmers, right? And maybe that's a lot of your listenership, but either you know people can pick and choose between the two. Another Andrew is Andrew Kennis, uh, is a professor of weed science at uh, at University of Wyoming. He's also been a big uh, influence in, in the same deal. My favorite pieces by him are all in the Food and Form. Uh, the FAFDL website. David Brown does not blog, uh, but he's also a, he's a soil uh, scientist at Washington State University. He was very active for a long time. He's dialed back a bit now, um, but he was very active in a GMO Skepta Forum and Food Farms Discussion Lab. Uh, and he's somebody I message with on Facebook and I talk to him on the phone now and then if I've got questions that are easier answered, you know, in, in a conversation that can kind of add and flow easier than Terrence Bradshaw at University of Vermont is runs their apple orchard the orcharding program there. He's had a couple pieces. We've, he hasn't been blogging that long and it's not that often, but a couple pieces we've got on the website. Farmers, uh, Brian Scott was an early influence. Uh, he said was a big no-till guy, does uh, corn, popcorn, and soy. I think a little wheat uh, in Indiana. We just did a great uh, Ask a Farmer is a thing we do in uh, the forum with uh, Jenny Schmidt who's got a, a formerly organic farm uh, in Maryland. And they do, um, they drop their organic certification specifically to switch over to no-till. And they do 6,000 acres, soybeans for tofu, wine grapes. They do a bunch of tomatoes for this kind of funky regional canned tomato and sauce company that they have a exclusive contract with like six or seven crops. Um, and she's got a, an interesting blog. Appreciate that. Those are really interesting. A couple of them I, I already follow Brian Scott, uh, Andrew Kniss on, on Twitter. Uh, so I'll have to follow some of those other ones and check them out. That's really interesting for, for you since starting the food and farm discussion lab what's been the biggest paradigm shift for you uh maybe something you thought when you first started uh, that you don't think now well i first say that uh one of the things that never ceases to impress me i wouldn't say amaze me i think that'd be condescending but i'm always impressed by uh the technical mastery uh, of the relevant biology and chemistry, you name it, of the farmers in the group. And that's a self-selecting group, I think, of the most intellectually curious and sort of some of the most intellectually curious and forward-thinking farmers around. What's changed? I really shifted on meat uh, impacts, um, and I am not a vegetarian, but I eat a lot less meat than I did. I have kind of whipsawed on antibiotic use in meat production 
from being not that concerned about it to being very concerned about it to uh, maybe being a little less concerned about it. Another, I should mention, two big influences at uh, UC Davis, Pamela Ronald, who wrote a book with her farmer, or her husband, who's a organic, teaches organic farming at uh, UC Davis, and she does uh, rice breeding and is has done a lot of biotech. Uh, they wrote Tomorrow's Table that kind of gave a uh, kind of hybrid vision of technologically progressive and, uh, you know, ecologically friendly farming that, you know, for me was bit both opened my eyes, but also kind of matched my values. So it kind of gave me permission to change my mind on specific stuff. But Allison uh, Van Enanam, uh is a beef uh, extension uh, professor there, and she does beef breeding. And but she just, after a Twitter exchange with me about uh, antibiotic use, on Twitter, uh, she wrote a deeply sourced, evidence-based look. And I knew this was the case that the evidence that antibiotic resistance moves into. Uh, the human population, the uh, farmers and farm workers, they contact it and then bring it back to their communities or manure, how it, you know, gets in the air, blows around communities, then it's hospitals or what have you. I, I knew the evidence was weak, but it still is plausible. And I had to confront just how low the evidence is. And we're moving in the right direction with the veterinary fee directive that has just gone into effect and with um, some of the big producers, uh, Tyson, Purdue, et cetera, uh, have made major steps. I've become, you know, more impressed and aware of the commitment to good farming of individual farmers I know. I am, I'm really disheartened to see how just systematically the the trade associations work against any accountability or any regulation. Um, and I know nobody wants to be regulated, but a lot of times, you know, whether it was the, the WOTUS or, you know, I saw like the in North Carolina, the, you know, taking away property owners' rights to, so that the, it really narrowed the scope of the way hog CAFOs could be sued for lowering property values. Or in Minnesota, the, uh, the ag lobbies there just got, they went, went through the state legislature and got rid of this uh, independent review board of, of environmental oversight when they didn't like a decision they made. You know, a lot of times I think, you know, you, you keep complaining about the way, you know, urban consumers don't understand what an effort farmers are doing and they don't understand how much uh, sustainability has improved. And I think that's all true. But it's also like from where I am, which is kind of in the middle, 
You know, I follow these things really closely, but I used to be that urban consumer. And I was a chef who, you know, I was a very typical Portland chef. And when we opened our restaurant, we sourced as much organic local product as we could, given we were also trying to, we were doing kind of a bistro cafe that was also meant to be just like a neighborhood, everyday kind of place. But I'm, I was that guy and those people are my friends and who I went to college with. So I know that mindset really well. So it's like, you know, you can write all the blogs you want and do all the, the charm offensive. But when I like watch what they do, not what they say, and I see the, the, uh, the political agenda of these groups, my advice is if you don't want to be seen as Darth Vader, Stop being Darth Vader, man. And it pains me to say that because these are my friends and I'm friends with people who are, you know, in leadership positions in those groups. And I understand sometimes, you know, why the the decisions they're making. And other times I just, I don't get it, you know. You know, I think most most of the big lowering the impact is is mostly going to come either through just as the technologies get better, whether it's precision, big data, precision application of uh, fertilizer, drone scouting, you know, as, as genetics get better, yields increase, and everything we've been talking about. But and, and mostly, you know, the policy changes I'm most enthusiastic about are mostly uh, more carrot than stick, but there's just some things that, that, that require standards and accountability. And that's, I mean, to give another shout out, a couple of years back, a guy by the name of, a farmer by the name of John Phipps wrote a, a, a blog post called Accountability Ag that I wish every farmer would read and, and really mull over, if not take to heart. I mean, let that be the, my, my last word. Thank you. Uh, we do have an audience of, of sort of intellectually curious people, either farmers or people in agriculture, agribusiness. Um, what would be your one ask of them in, with regards to if they wanted to sort of get connected with the work you're doing? Join the forum and uh, whatever way of if you have an RSS reader or however you follow websites or blogs, follow the website. Hey, I hope you found that discussion as valuable as I did about the future of agriculture and how we should be looking at sustainability and making sure that our claims are backed by the evidence. Uh, I really respect the work that Mark does, and I really encourage all of you to check out the Food and Farm Discussion Lab, because I think if you enjoy the topics discussed on this podcast, you'll really enjoy their content as well. I mentioned last week, but I just want to reiterate, I want to hear from you on SpeakPipe. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com forward slash future of ag. Head over there and record your comments on an episode that stands out so far as a favorite. I'd love to hear that and perhaps play it on a future episode of this podcast. We will be back next week to officially begin the series about sustainability. We have so many, it's almost not even a series because the stories go all over the place, but I really, really think you're going to enjoy analyzing uh, what will move the needle when it comes to sustainability and the future of agriculture. Thanks as always for listening. We'll be back next week.
Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,